Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the blessed virtues that Scripture has given to us, which we read all over from Genesis to Revelation, God has given a blessed virtue to us, and that's the virtue of forgiveness. Forgiveness, in biblical terms, a fiumi, one of the terms that are used, means to send away. This is what the Lord does. He sends our sins away. Uh, a good demonstration of that sending away is in Psalm 103, where he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered against us again. Sending away. This is how we are to respond when we forgive one another. Notice something in Matthew 18 in a dialogue between Peter and Jesus regarding forgiveness. Peter came to him and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he says up to seven times. Seven in scripture is a number of perfection. And so Peter thought he was really going above and beyond since the rabbis taught that if you forgive somebody three times, that's all you needed to do and not go any further than that because they say that forgiveness found in the Old Testament of the Lord to the enemies of Israel was found only three times. So that's all you're required to do. So Peter, in saying seven times, he was more than doubling the amount of forgiveness towards his brother. Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. This is not a keeping record of how many times that I have forgiven somebody. You know, this is 490 times, that's it, that's the limit. That's not what it means. It's an expression that simply means that we are to be a people that perpetually forgive one another when there is confession. There is reconciliation that takes place. Therefore, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Okay, and so you see that the king had these servants. Uh, they were involved with the king intimately. He wanted to settle accounts, and when he began to settle accounts, one brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. That simply was an astronomical amount of money. It was innumerable, and it was used and understood that way in the eyes of Hebrews. It was about the highest number that they could count up to was 10,000. It was an infinite number. It didn't go any higher than that. They didn't know anything higher than that. That's the amount that he owed to the master could never repay. But he, as he was not able to pay, he didn't have the ability to pay, his master commanded that he be sold you know, with his wife, with his children, and, that, uh, and all that he had, and the payment may be made. So in other words, he would recoup some money. He would sell the, the man, his wife, his children, and everything that he possessed to recoup some of the money that he had lost. The servant, therefore... Notice, he knew what the consequences were. Verse 26, he fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. He was genuine. He was sincere. He wanted to pay back the master, but he wanted patience. He wanted time. The master knew that it could never be repaid. The master of the servant was moved with compassion. And he released him and forgave him the debt. Isn't that how God deals with us? 
So then we come to the Lord and we fall down upon our face before Him and cry out for mercy. Are we not like the tax collector in the temple who beats upon his breast continually? Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The one who said, I'm not like other men. I do this and I do that and I do the other thing. God is long-suffering. He is compassionate. We find in Exodus 34, as He reveals Himself to Moses, that God is long-suffering and compassionate with His people. He releases him from the debt, the debt which He owed. God releases us as well. Payment is made by Christ. The master of the servant was moved, released him, forgave him. But that servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's like three months' wages. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patiently, I pay you all. He did the same thing that this man had done. He was looking for mercy. He was looking for compassion. And he found none with the man who had been forgiven. So the fellow servant fell down and begged, Have patience with me. And he would not but went and threw him in prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And the master said, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? His master was angry and he delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father will also do to each one of you if from your heart you do not forgive your brother his trespasses. You see the lesson that is given there. That he was sent to the torturers does not mean destruction. It does not mean damnation. It means severe judgment from God. It means severe discipline of God. It means God's heavy hand upon an individual who will not forgive. God will do to us as we find in the parable there that Jesus spoke of. If we, from the heart, do not forgive our brother. Now, forgiving from the heart does not mean that you forgive him in your heart and go your way. It means you are genuine. You genuinely forgive. It's not hypocritical. It's not surfacy. It's not going through motions. It's a genuine forgiveness of your brother. And when you forgive someone, you cast that sin, as it were, behind your back. You bring it up no more. It is dealt with. You don't continue to hash it out and talk about it. It's done. It's over with. And as Jesus said earlier on, you gain your brother in this way when you deal with him, the two of you, and he, you, you come to him and deal with the sin and, and he forgives and reconcile, reconciliation takes place and that's it. It's done with. But is that what goes on in the life of the church? Is it really true forgiveness? Because I find so often... More often than not, 
that people don't have a biblical understanding, they don't follow the paradigm given in Scripture about forgiveness. You don't go to ten other people and deal with somebody else's sin. It's the two of you. You and the one who has violated the commandments against you, and you better be sure that that individual has broken the commandments against you. And if so, you go, just the two of you, with the spirit of reconciliation to gain your brother. And you sin, beloved, you sin if you tell other people before you have reconciled with your brother. And when your brother is reconciled to you, you sin when you tell others again of that sin and that situation. Forgiving him from the heart means there is a genuine expression of forgiveness and it is always accompanied by words. There is always an exchange of words in forgiveness. It must be the case in the paradigm that Jesus has given when you go to the brother and you confront him in a godly way, not with a sledgehammer, but striving to build bridges to reconcile, to repair. And you speak to one another about the sin that has been committed. And then there is an exchange of, yes, I've sinned. Forgive me. I forgive you. That's it. A me. It's sent away. It's not to be brought up again. This is what we find in the book of Philemon. Paul is addressing Philemon. Was clearly an affluent man, but a godly man. A man who had been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was godly. He was desirous of living according to the truth of God's word. And he understood forgiveness. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he addresses him, he addresses not with the letter of the law, but he appeals to him in love. Because he knows the character of Philemon. And so he comes to the speaks well of Philemon. He was a friend of Paul. He was a man who had wealth. The church met in his home. People gathered together. He had to have a home that was big enough to accommodate for people of gatherings. It wasn't a large congregation. He lived in Colossae. Clearly had at least one servant, probably more than that. But he was a godly man. He had the right, you understand, with regards to uh, Onesimus, to do with him as he wanted. Slaves had no rights. They were treated less than the livestock. If Paul wanted to kill Onesimus, put him in the stocks, beat him, whip him, scourge him, hurt him badly, he had every right to do so under the law at the time. No one would say anything to him in doing that. But Paul knows the heart of Philemon. He knows he is a regenerate, godly, a faithful, gracious, compassionate man. And so he appeals to him. Notice in our text, beginning in verse 8. 
Therefore, I thought I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, right? Though I might be. Paul had the authority as an apostle. He was commissioned with the authority given by Jesus Christ to bring that upon Philemon, to demand him. Why is that? Because, beloved, God commands us to forgive. God commands forgiveness. That is not an option. We are commanded to forgive. If you are unforgiving, and are true believers, can true believers do that? Absolutely. Do they do that? Absolutely. What do they incur when they are unforgiving? They incur the discipline of God. God's hand upon them, chastening them for whom the Lord loves, He chastens, He disciplines. He brings them to repentance. So it is, just as Jesus said, my Father will do to each of you if you, from the heart, do not forgive your brother his trespasses. It's not the unbelieving world he's talking about here. He's talking about brothers. He's talking about those of the body of Christ. And therefore the Lord bringing his hand against the disobedient believer who is unwilling to forgive because he wants a pound of flesh. He's angry. Have you been there? I have. I get it. I know exactly what that means. To not want to forgive. But being commanded to give. And as you are unwilling to forgive, then the Holy Spirit starts to work on you, doesn't He? He begins through the Word of God to convict your soul. To push you down, as it were. To squash you out. It's what the dark night of the soul that Luther spoke about comes upon you. We struggle. You ache inside. Your spiritual vitality has been pushed aside. You have no desire for the things of God. That's the disciplining hand of the Lord. God disciplines His children. Beloved, don't think that this doesn't happen. This happens to God's children all the time because all the time we walk in disobedience. And unforgiveness is disobedience. What do we need to pray? We need to pray that God would keep our hearts tender. We need to pray that our hearts would not become hardened. Because if left to ourselves, what do you think will happen? The heart will become hardened. We need to pray and confess the, the fact that my heart can become hardened. I can harden my heart in this area. Lord, keep me from this. Keep me from sinning against you. Keep my heart tender. And what does that mean? That means that when and if that individual comes to me and we're able to deal with that particular sin, that I will be ready and willing to forgive. If we are not cultivating our heart that way, you won't be ready and willing to forgive. And you will be sinning against God and against His church. And you will incur the hand of God upon you. And the discipline of the Lord is not fun. It's grievous. That's what the writer of the Hebrews relates. But, you know, 
This is a demonstration that we're children of God. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He chastens every son in whom He has received. Not the unbelieving world, but those adopted into His family. Those are the children He chastens. So, forgiveness, not an option. We are called to forgive. If my brother sins seven times in a day and seven times in a day comes and says, I repent, Jesus says, you shall forgive him. And you think about the debt that you owe to the Lord. You think about all the sins that you have sinned against God. Think about all the commandments that you have broken. And as a believer that you still break daily. And you have been forgiven all of your debt. Christ has incurred your debt. He is the one who has absorbed your wrath. That which was due to you. God's wrath that was upon you. Christ absorbed that. And you won't forgive your brother? His trespass? Be careful about the spirit of unforgiveness. Be careful about delayed response. And forgiveness. Be careful, husbands and wives, in forgiving one another. When you're not ready to forgive, well, you better get ready. And you better, as the Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, not let the sun go down on your wrath, which is an expression, a Hebrewism that says, be quick to deal with it. Why? Because the heart becomes harder, doesn't it? So this is what Paul is saying to Philemon. I could command you. Though I could. I have the authority from Christ. And I have the boldness to do so. I'm not afraid to do so. As we would say today. I'm not afraid to get up in your grill. I'm not afraid to bring you this truth. I'm not afraid to confront you. But he says for love's sake. He appeals to love. He appeals to the love of God which is in the soul of Onesimus or Philemon. This love that God has shed abroad in his heart. And he clearly has a love for Onesimus. But Paul is appealing for love's sake. Appealing to him. Appealing. Uh, the parakaleo is to calling alongside of him. What is he calling alongside of him? He's calling alongside of Philemon the word of truth. He's putting something to mind. That's the admonition. The new to theo is to put to mind the things of God. It's to bring the word. It's to remember the teaching of Scripture. That's what we need to do with one another, isn't it? We need to appeal for love's sake. The love of the Lord for us. And how we then respond in love towards the body of Christ. We are to love one another even as God in Christ has loved us. So Paul says, I appeal for love's sake to you. Being one as such as Paul, right? Paul the aged. That's what he's appealing, right? Paul is talking about something in his own life. Look, I'm, I'm bruised, I'm battered, I'm aged. I bear in my body the marks of Christ. Paul was an emblem of forgiveness. A forgiving man. A man who was forgiving towards other who had been whipped, who had been scourged, 
He was beaten, stoned, left for dead, a night and a day in the deep. He was one who was slandered. He was gossiped. He was hated. He was maligned. And yet Paul was forgiving. Paul is bringing just simply that. Remember me, Paul, the aged one. Presbuterus. It simply means an older man. Paul was probably about 60 at this time. Not old in, in our standards, but in that day and age, old. Many didn't live past that age. But Paul was older than what his age told. Paul was worn out. Paul said that he was like a drink offering and he was ready to be poured out. He was tired. He was battered and beaten for the cause of Christ. And when you would see him, if you were to see him, you would see him as somebody, and we've said this before, you saw somebody and you said, wow, look like they've aged 20 years. Guy's 60, but he looks like he's 80. What happened to him? Of all the trying difficulty that had happened to him in his life as an apostle, and yet he's a forgiving man. He's appealing to that. Re remember, Philemon, Remember of my forgiveness of you. Being Paul the aged. And now also the prisoner of Jesus Christ. I like that designation. Paul is in a Roman prison. And yet he doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome. Of Herod. He sees himself a prisoner of Christ. Because he's there by design. He's there by sovereign design. He's there by the providential hand of God. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't God's providence for me to be here, but it's necessary for me to be here. Because this is where Onesimus came to faith in Christ. God has a purpose, beloved. God has a purpose in every motion of life. There is no wasted motion in life, although we might think that it is. We often say things to this to this extent. We're wasting time. What are you doing? Oh, I'm just wasting time. There is no time to waste. God has a purpose in every appointment. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing and whomever is around you is there by appointment. Not by chance, but by design. Don't we miss it? Don't we often miss the providential hand of God? Don't we often miss the supernatural working of God in the ordinary events of life? Don't we often miss it? To sit down and talk to people and to realize that God is working in and through these conversations as we're speaking about Jesus. And there are people overhearing things that are being said. Let me tell you this. Charles Spurgeon. Many of you are familiar with the name. Have read things of his material. Have received a lot of my, my text messages, quotes but with Spurgeon. He was walking in the streets of London one day. And it was cold and it was snowy and it was nasty. And he went into the first building that he could get into. And it was a church building. 
And there was a man preaching the gospel. And it wasn't even the preacher. The preacher couldn't make it because of the weather. It's an itinerant preacher. It was a layman. It was a guy in the pew that got up and began reading the scripture and began proclaiming, unfolding God's word. And there sat Spurgeon, warming himself, not there by his intent that I'm going to be there for the church service. I need to warm myself. I need to be in a warm place. And the man was preaching in the book of Isaiah. Look unto me, all you who are weary. I give you rest. Come to me. And the man looked right at Spurgeon and said, You look like a man that needs to come to Jesus. And Spurgeon said, The Lord regenerated his soul. And you would think, Wow, what are the chances that that would happen like that? What a coincidence, people would say. How foolish. If you said that, you're acting like a fool. That's what the world says. This is the providential hand of God moving that man directly where he would have him to be to hear the call of the gospel and come to Christ and be probably the greatest preacher of the 18th century. There's no wasted motion with God. You have no idea who you are dealing with when you're talking to people and what kind of emphasis and what kind of working that the Lord will do in them, how you might simply uh, influence them in certain ways by how you live your life and how you speak to them. That's what Paul is saying. We're prisoners of Christ. We've been bought and purchased by Christ. We're not our own. Why, beloved? Why do we confess that and act just the opposite? Why do we act like we're our own? We don't belong to the Lord. Like He hasn't purchased us. Why do we act like that? Well, it's because of the rebellion that is still in our souls. What ought we to do? Confess it. Lord, I've acted like I don't belong to you. Forgive me. And the Lord is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. We're prisoners of Christ. It's a blessed state to be in. If you're not a prisoner of Christ, you're a prisoner of Satan and sin. If you're not a prisoner of Christ, if you're not under his dominion, if he doesn't own, own you, you're owned by the devil. You belong to the devil. You are a pawn of devil. You are one who is being shifted and moved about by this wave of the devil. Because the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Not the prisoner of Christ. Great designation. I am a prisoner of Christ. And therefore... As one who has been forgiven, Christ has forgiven me all of my sins. I was a blasphemer. I was a hater of the church. I put him to death. And Christ forgave me. I appeal to you. I come alongside of you and I speak this truth to you of what the Word of God teaches about forgiveness. If we confess, He forgives. 
So he appeals to, for his son Onesimus. Notice, my son. Paul refers to Onesimus as a son. What does he say here? Whom I have begotten while in my chains. Ganao. It, it, it's birthed is what it means. What, what do you mean that Paul birthed Onesimus? It simply has reference to this, that Paul was an instrument of the Lord. That Paul is a co-laborer with Christ. There is a two working, beloved. There is an ultimate, there is a proximate. The ultimate. Who is the one who works salvation? Who is the one who regenerates the soul? Who is the one who raises us up spiritually and gives us new life? It's Jesus. I have no power to do that. I couldn't do it to myself. I couldn't do it for myself. If I could do it, I would do it. I'd raise them all up. But I cannot. I have no power to do that. But how does the Lord regenerate the soul? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. The instrumentality is the word of God. The truth, the scriptures. This is how God speaks down into the soul. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They hear my voice. He who hears you hears me, Jesus said. And he who hears me hears the one who sent me. God speaks through his word. Paul is a co-laborer in that sense, in approximate sense, bringing the word of God. Have you heard the word? You hear the word as I'm proclaiming it to you. That's the outward hearing. Only God can give you the inward hearing of the soul. So that the word doesn't just simply reverberate in the outward area of the ear, but it reaches down into the soul and God, by His Spirit, makes you alive. He brings you forth like Lazarus. Come forth and you come and you live. He causes you to live and you hear. That's the proximate of the Apostle Paul speaking with preaching the word. He birthed Onesimus in that way. Paul was the instrument, the co-worker, but which Christ used to redeem this man. Onesimus is a believer. Now you have Philemon a believer, Onesimus a believer. Now you have not a believer dealing with an unbeliever, but you have the household of faith. Paul wrote in Galatians 6 to do good to all men, but have a special affection to the household of faith. So he appeals in this way. I've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Onesimus is forgiven. He is a brother. Forgive him. Receive him back. He once was unprofitable. He wasn't efficient. He was clearly unprofitable. A lazy slave. He stole himself away. He was the property of another. He stole himself away. He broke the Eighth Commandment. Philemon had every right to bring down the letter of the law upon him. Paul says, love him, he is now a brother. He once was unprofitable. Notice that the changing of the mind changes the direction of the life. Notice that he's not only was he unprofitable, but now, as born of the Spirit of God, he's profitable. Did you not find that? 
Did you not find when the Lord caused you to be born again, you viewed things differently? I have a master who is in heaven that I serve. I will do well, I will do good for my employer. Though he's a wretched man, I will do good to my employer. Because my master is in heaven who calls me to be faithful as a worker. That's why the Apostle Paul says, he once was unprofitable, now he's profitable. This is the work ethic changes. It's the design of his life, the understanding of his life changes. Beloved, as believers, we ought to outwork all the pagans. We ought to outlove, outwork, outplay everything. Because we have a master in heaven. We're the prisoners of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the forgiven, the raised up, the mind of Christ. We live in newness of life. We're different people. That's what Paul is saying. Onesimus, he was useless. But now he's useful. Both to you and to me. Paul found great use because clearly the change in Onesimus' life was one of love and affection and compassion and long-suffering and service. And he desired to serve the Apostle Paul. He clearly was putting himself in risk to be there with the Apostle Paul because he didn't count his life worthy to himself. He knew he was serving the Master. This is the appeal. If you're not ready to forgive, I appeal to you with the love of Christ. As you have been forgiven all of your sins because of Christ. Forgive that one who has come to you and ask for forgiveness. Forgive them and receive them back. This is what we find embodied in this little epistle. The call of a man to forgive another who has wronged him greatly. All for the glory of God who has forgiven us all of our sins for the sake of Christ. Amen. Shall we pray?